Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So you guys, I think that Michael Cohen would be a natural for the Rational Security Podcast. Because he drinks scotch. Mm-hmm. He drinks Glenlivet 12. Yeah, but he drinks it on the rocks, okay? Why would you ruin 12-year-old scotch by putting it on ice? Let, Susan, read for us what Michael Cohen told a federal judge yesterday, while under oath, I might. So, so we can be sure it's true. It's true. So Cohen was asked whether he had taken medication or alcohol in the last 24 hours, and he responded, honestly, we presume, I had a glass of Glenlivet 12 on the rocks. Okay. So is the Glenlivet 12 medication or alcohol or both? Was it maybe his last drink as a free man? Mm. Yeah, he had a big decision to make. He would not be drinking with Individual One, however, because Individual One is a teetotaler. That's right. Individual One, who according to the criminal information at the time was the president of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why we know that Individual One would never be a good guest on the Rational Security Podcast. Individual One would not join us in our scotch Look, drinking. Oh, wait a minute. Susan doesn't drink scotch on the podcast. Oh, I have. Susan, are you individual I'm one? I'm just not currently. <laughs> <laughs> I am individual one. You are a number one I individual. I am an individual. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the individual one and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day edition. I'm Shane Harris. I came back from vacation just in time. We're so glad you're back, Shane. We were barely hanging out without you. <laughs> if you hadn't been here when all this stuff went down, yeah. you would have just... You should have just turned the plane around. <laughs> you should be like, landed, I'm sorry. Spin this like, around. Nope, I'm going back to the fjords. Leaving. Not yeah. interested. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for holding off the shitstorm until I got back to Washington. <laughs> well, we, 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 they called us and they said, can we go forward with this? And we actually talked to the jury. Yeah. And the jury said... Yeah, they just pretended to be deadlocked on some of those yeah. counts yeah. to give you time Shane to Because Shane wasn't back yet. And right. we, said, we said, just cool it for another six hours. He wouldn't want to miss this. He was very thoughtful of them to deliver their verdicts and for Michael Cohen to plead guilty on Tuesday so that we weren't a week behind talking about this now that we're recording on Wednesday. So true. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Michael Cohen and ladies and gentlemen of the Manafort jury, <laughs> <laughs> because you set us up very nicely. Uh, we are all back here in the Jungle Studio. I'm here with Ben, Tammy, and Susan. Hi, guys. Hi, hey. I missed you. We, we missed, missed you, too. Oh. I really missed you because I had to host the show last week. I listened to some of you. You guys did great. I texted you uh, in the middle of uh, the week and um, asked whether you were around, and you said, I'm on a boat That's in why you, Were you going to have me like record from Norway? No. Oh, okay. I was going to give you a tip. Oh. Um, but- 
you were busy, and so you I said, still, "Do you know I wrote like four stories while I was in Scandinavia?" You didn't That's tell me that. Does Joe vacation. know that you wrote like four stories yeah. while you were on vacation? I was with my family. I needed time away. <laughs> 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 on the podcast this week, what else? We're gonna break down the one hell of a day. Uh, August 21st, 2018. We're recording on Wednesday. We're going to talk first about Michael Cohen's guilty plea in the Southern District of New York. Then we're going to talk about the uh, guilty verdict uh, on 8 of 18 counts for Paul Manafort and his trial in Virginia. And then we're going to talk about what it all means for President Trump and how he might respond to this. Um, so let's just dive right in with Cohen and the well, we'll talk about a lot of aspects of this case. Let's let's start with the one that is obviously the biggest wow, uh, holy crap kind of moment, where both in the information, the criminal information in which Trump is referred to as an individual one, but more importantly, in Cohen's allocution in his statement to the judge, says that the uh, payments that were made to Karen McDougal and to Stormy Daniels uh, were coordinated with and directed by President Trump. He didn't use his name. Uh, and of course, these payments constitute the campaign finance violations uh, that he pleaded guilty to. So Cohen is essentially saying the then candidate, now president of the United States, directed me to commit crimes. For uh, the principal purpose of affecting of, the campaign. Of influencing the election, precisely. So, Ben, let's just start with the very top level. How big of a deal is what Michael Cohen said in court? I think it counts as a fucking big deal. Um, <laughs> Wait, is it a big fucking deal or is it a fucking big deal? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> both. Both. Um, so, look, I mean, a lot of presidents have been credibly accused of criminal activity. That in and of itself is not you know, that unusual. And there have been questions about the truthfulness of things that presidents have said in circumstances in which they're, you know, obliged to tell the truth. And um, on the other hand, this is a situation in which uh, the president's lawyer, having had a very large volume of recordings and documents that he made and maintained, some of them presumably about Donald Trump and his conduct, having that having been raided and him having been prosecuted, walks into court without a uh, agreement for prosecution and implicates the president in activity that he is acknowledging as to himself was criminal. The most important thing about that, to my mind, is not that Cohen made that allegation. It's that the Justice Department allowed him to use that factual statement as a basis for acknowledging his own guilt, which means that the Justice Department at least uh, believes him and believes that his uh, factual claims are true. And probably has information on which they're basing their belief, not just Michael Cohen's. I'm sure, I'm sure that's right. Yeah. Uh, believes Michael Cohen to be telling the truth and believes that it constitutes a criminal offense. Uh, that's a really important fact. And I don't think, you know, the president can tweet no collusion until the cows come home, but I think that is a very hard fact for him to get around or to ignore the consequences of. So I think that one of the – well, so first of all, it, it seems clear then that since the Justice Department um, was comfortable 
with him using that fact base in making his plea, that they have other material evidence, perhaps tapes of phone conversations or other evidence of the coordination and the direction. So, you know, number one, this is no longer a case in which there are people around candidate Trump and then President Trump who may be engaged in activity and he could plead ignorance. He's no longer insulated. Um, He's now directly implicated. So that's the first thing. But the other thing that I took away from this is that from the moment of his victory and from the moment that these allegations about Russian interference and then Russian collusion emerged, President Trump's reluctance to acknowledge any of this has been rooted in his own sense that if any of this stuff were real, it cuts at the legitimacy of his own electoral victory, um, that any interference in the process makes his his presidency, in a sense, less legitimate. But what we have here is a blow to the legitimacy of his presidency that's because of his own action as alleged by Michael Cohen, or at least at at a minimum, the actions of people working for him. And that seems to me a much deeper body blow to the presidency of Donald Trump, to Donald Trump the person, um, his ego, the way he thinks about himself, the way he's approached this entire matter. And I, I think the implications of that in terms of the arguments that his allies make in his defense and in terms of his own behavior are yet to be seen. But they, it seems to me they've got to be pretty profound. So I agree with Tammy that sort of this is uh, this does strike at the legitimacy because it is material information that was denied to the American electorate shortly before the election in an incredibly close election. Right. So this is sort of the, uh, you know, absent the foreign component. It, it goes to this, this exact same question that he seems to be so incredibly afraid of. You know, look, I, I of the Michael Cohen charges that he pled guilty to or pleaded guilty to, you know, the, the campaign finance violations are the only interesting ones. And I agree with Ben that it's interesting that the Justice Department allowed him to make this statement, in part because he didn't need to, right? It doesn't matter if he was acting at the direction of uh, of Donald Trump or, or a particular individual. And, and actually, they don't describe that specifically in the criminal information. So this really is Michael Cohen sort of, you know, leaning forward. I think the big question is what happens now, sort of in terms of the cooperation, uh, you know, what else Michael Cohen might know, you know, you would assume mm-hmm. this might be a person who knows where all the bodies are buried. And and a little bit, I think that the uh, Lanny Davis sort of PR tour this morning, kind of going on every radio and television show saying my client knows all kinds of things relevant to the special counsel, a little bit undercuts the notion that yeah. Michael Cohen has lots and lots of damaging information because if you had lots and lots of relevant damaging information and you just pleaded guilty to eight felony counts, you wouldn't be you wouldn't have your lawyers going on, you know, sort of the the publicity circuit. You would be sitting and having private conversations with the special counsel's office. And so to my mind, that is one thing that is a, a little bit difficult to reconcile in terms of like, what is the significance now? Susan, I'm with you on that. And I've thought this way, actually, since the tape surfaced of Cohen and Trump, where they're talking apparently about the payoff. Uh, and, and, and on behalf of, and, and he mentions our friend David, who we think is David Pecker from AMI. 
my thought was, if this is such valuable information to the special counsel's investigation, why is Michael Cohen leaking it to CNN? Mm-hmm. I mean, now they can just simply you know, go on the internet and get it. They don't need Michael Cohen. And the way that Lanny Davis is kind of coming out in an almost pleading way in some of these statements saying, my client would be very willing to talk to the special counsel's office, certainly suggests that they haven't called his client. Uh, and and I, I, I'm with you. I don't know that the that, inv- that prosecutors really felt that they needed him, which raises another interesting question of do they have information of the kind that Michael Cohen might be able to provide that could implicate the president from other sources? So I think I may know the answer to this. Not I a, hope so. Um, or at least I may be able to hypothesize an answer to this. Uh, the relationship here is so imbalanced. They've got him so dead to rights on so many counts that they don't actually need to form a cooperation deal right. with him. They need only to prosecute him, let let him plead down to eight counts, which is what they did yesterday. And the possible sentencing consequences of that are vast enough alone that he has every incentive to be helpful to them Whenever they come to him and say, hey, we need your help. Uh, can you answer some questions? And so I think his lawyer is out there basically plaintively pleading for a please need us. Please need us. Call me, maybe. Call me, you know, and they but Cohen needs that- to be needed in order to get the benefit that that he wants to get. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the prosecutors have the information he might be able to provide from other sources. It just means that they're not uh, salivating to get that information. And it means that they don't think they need cooperation with Cohen in order to get Cohen to cooperate with them. In other words, he's cooperating anyway, is what you're saying. So it doesn't necessarily indicate anything about the... Um, depth or breadth of information in the hands of the Justice Department about the culpability of the president in well, any of All this. it means is that there's nothing to negotiate about. I think it's also possible that the special counsel's office just doesn't view the campaign finance issues mm-hmm. as within its purview at all. Um, you know, this this sort of terrible day is unfolding against sort of another week of crazy stories, including the George Papadopoulos sentencing memorandum, um, and then this really bizarre article about Don McGahn, um, which was followed up by another article by Bloomberg just uh, like an hour ago, in which McGahn says not only that he was not consulted on on this question, right, because he was, of course, the the Trump campaign attorney. He was not consulted on uh, on this payment question, but also that in these very lengthy interviews with, with the special counsel's office, sort of the revelation of the week that he'd provided all this cooperation, the special counsel's office hadn't even asked him about them at all. And so what we might be seeing is sort of a, a really clear bifurcation between what Mueller views as sort of within his purview and essentially a belief that Michael Cohen just doesn't know anything about the things he cares about. Now, Michael Cohen might know all kinds of information damaging to the president. Query whether now there's a new investigation in the Southern District of New York, the way you might expect in any situation, except for when it's the president of the United States. But maybe what we're seeing now is actually sort of that that 
like spiraling or exponential growth of lots of different investigations popping up, uh, you know, such that like Mueller just isn't interested in this stuff. And, and we should remember too, Mueller handed this case off to the Southern District, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is something that he at some point uh, early on made a decision. This is not a road that we want to go down. But presumably the Southern District and the special counsel's office are talking to one another about their respective investigations, right? So that if the Southern District had reason to believe that Michael Cohen had relevant information for the special counsel, the special counsel's office would learn that from them, right? So the fact that the special counsel's office has not reached out to Michael Cohen does suggest that the Southern District doesn't think Michael Cohen has much to offer one thing, that, investigation. one thing that I have sort of been puzzling over, and Ben, maybe you have a, a sort of a theory on this, is assuming that Mueller had sort of a, a enough information or, or the sufficient information at the time that he handed the case over to SDNY to know that it probably le- led to the president or implicated the president in some way, why he would choose to hand over that investigation as opposed to sort of holding on to anything that might ultimately culminate with an investigation into the president of the United States such that it might necessitate the sort of independence that a special counsel's office offers. Yeah. So I think there's several questions here and they're mixed, right? One is, does Michael Cohen have relevance to the core investigation that Mueller is engaged in of La Ferruse? And the answer to that question, I think, given the Trump Tower Moscow stuff, given his uh, proximity to kind of everybody important at different times, given his weird associations with uh, Russian money people, probably does. Um And I can't imagine that at some point Mueller's people won't want to talk to him about certain aspects of what we call collusion. The second question is, is his private financial business in New York and his work in New York on behalf of Trump as a fixer in areas unrelated to Russia within Mueller's jurisdiction? And I think Mueller made the judgment that it is not. Um, and that is why he kicked it to the SDNY. I think that has the collateral benefit that may have been in the back of his mind that, hey, every day the president is threatening to fire me. And if you keep all the investigations in one investigative body, i.e. the special counsel, who the president can fire, you have a Fort Knox problem. And so if you refer things to other offices, you do kill two birds with one stone. First of all, you keep your investigation very pure and very within its uh, its mandate. But secondly, you spread the wealth around and you have investigations in different parts of the Justice Department. It's much, much harder to shut it down. But mm-hmm. is your guess, so ordinarily, if SDNY prosecuted someone, Somebody pleaded guilty and said, and I conspired with another individual in order to commit this crime. There would then be at least an investigation into that person. Should we now assume that there is another investigation into the president and his 
uh, and his and culpability on no, campaign finance, no. or does it just die? No, I don't think either. I think the SDNY has this investigation. They will have to make a decision to what extent there is a basis to proceed uh, in further at all and further against the president at all. That will raise a question of whether there needs to be a second special counsel to handle that because typically the Justice Department doesn't investigate the president. Well, we may be close to that point where we have to consider that question. We may not yet, depending on how close they feel they're getting to being an actual investigation of the president. Eventually, that's not their decision. It's Rod Rosenstein's decision. And, you know, under the regs, uh, and actually, this one, I suppose, could be Jeff Sessions', Jeff Sessions decision, decision because right? it's not Lafayre Roos. No, he recused himself from anything related, related to, to the, the presidential campaign. campaign. Right. Ah. So he's going to be recused from this. So if this becomes Rod Rosenstein's decision under those regs, do you think you should or are obliged to or ought to appoint a second special counsel? You know, for what it's worth, I think that would be a terrible idea. You know, and I actually think this is that rare instance where the logic of the special prosecutor works exactly the opposite way than it normally does. And, you know, New York with acting U.S. attorney who's a career person, uh, because the U.S. attorney who re uh, reports to Sessions and was appointed by Trump is recused. It's really hard to see how Trump interferes with the U.S. with the Southern District of New York right now. You appoint a special prosecutor, you have all the problems that you have potentially with the president firing Mueller. I mean, I, I do wonder if we aren't a little bit getting ahead of ourselves because this criminal information against Michael Cohen describes criminal, potential criminal conduct by lots of different people. So if I was editor number one or or an officer of corporation number one, I'm like losing track of, of You're executive editor number unnamed one. Unnamed time, <laughs> executive editor number one. Uh, you know, I would be incredibly nervous right now because to the extent Michael Cohen is guilty of this conduct and I possessed the requisite mental state, I too uh, might be guilty of this conduct. So it, it might be that uh, the sort of the question of Trump is not yet ripe because there are a bunch of other people to indict for this behavior. Yeah, and let's let's be clear. When you read that document, that criminal information, the thing that drips off of it is that the SDNY is describing a conspiracy to violate these campaign finance laws. And they're identifying a group of people. They don't use the words conspiracy or conspirator. But as I was reading that, the thing that I was thinking of, the next document is a document indicting for conspiracy this group of people named in this. And then you raise the question of whether the president is an unindicted co-conspirator Well, particularly in that if some of these executives that are named of Trump Organization people are members of his family. Uh, it also raises another question of whether this then crosses some sort of red line for him and gets you closer to the moment where Trump flushes the whole thing and fires Bob Mueller. It also does appear to be describing a pretty well-rehearsed dance, right? These are not people that, uh, you know, are are figuring it out as they go. These appear to be people that are uh, sort of operating a well-rehearsed system of, all right, we're going to pay this person and this is how the money's going to go. We've run that play before. Query, yeah. you know, what else might be out there? And, you know, if you look at reporting in the Daily Beast regarding TMZ, all kinds of other sort of 
you know, media outlets or tabloid outlets. I, I think there are questions of how many other stories are out there? How many other deals might there have been? Right. Well, and, and as others have noted um, in media commentary and so on, that kind of protecting your principal, your principal figure, that is your celebrity, is standard practice in celebrity world, right? It becomes a, an entirely different matter when said celebrity becomes a candidate for federal office and subject to federal campaign law. And so, you know, the, the notion that they had run that play before, almost certainly, because anyone who has a high enough public profile is probably going to be subject to that kind of attention. And there are whole companies that exist to help celebrities deal with that kind of unwanted attention. But all of a sudden, if you're a political candidate and you're using campaign money to do it, you're breaking the law. Yeah. Or if you are, or if you are affecting other people to go out and spend money on your behalf right. uh, in excess of the limits. So um, let's talk a bit here now about the other piece of the uh, the other shoe, because two big old shoes dropped, two combat boots, two <laughs> ski boots, <laughs> two weighted ski boots two dropped yesterday. ostrich-feathered feather Ostrich-covered Not very. feathers. It's ostrich leather. Okay. Ugh. Ostrich leather. Ostrich Please. leather boots. So gross. Ugh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's no accounting for taste, but there is accounting for tax fraud. Um, and so, oh, Shane, nice one. Uh, so Paul Manafort totally going on a shirt. Shane. <laughs> you like that? Well uh, done, rational security host number one. Yeah. <laughs> so Paul Manafort, very good man who worked for a very short period of time, uh, found guilty on eight of eighteen counts. Uh, yesterday in his trial in Virginia, uh, largely these these are these are the financial crimes that he stood accused of. We should probably say at the outset to just get it out of the way. Do not have the impression that because he was convicted of eight of eighteen counts that that was a bad day for the special counsel. He was convicted on crimes, very serious ones, in all of the categories that were alleged, uh, and it is not unusual for juries to deadlock as they did on some of these counts. Um, so this should not be read as like a half victory, although I think it's safe to say that had he been acquitted on all counts, there would be some serious questions about whether the special counsel's investigation was going to continue. Yeah. And just to be clear, a lot of press is getting this wrong. He was not acquitted on any No, counts. they hung. They, yeah. Uh, the jury convicted on eight of 18 counts and could not reach a, a verdict on the other 10. Here's the evidence that this is a win for Mueller. Yeah. Right, there's uh, no exoneration. And, the no, no, and yeah. theoretically, the government could, could yeah. retry him. I was going right. to say, here's the evidence. The government could retry him on those remaining 10 counts, and they won't because they're perfectly satisfied with what they got. Right. Yeah. So Trump uh, has responded. He responded yesterday uh, uh, after getting off the Air Force One in West Virginia to attend a rally saying this had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with Russian collusion. And that is technically true. But it seems to me, and maybe I'll go to Susan with this, is that this creates tremendous pressure. There was already tremendous pressure on Paul Manafort. By this creates even more pressure. He is now facing uh, charges in the District of Columbia where he'll go on trial in September for issues uh, stemming from his representation of Ukraine, which he didn't register for under as required by law, um, is the way to read how this affects Trump that it puts more pressure on Manafort to potentially cooperate and reveal things that he might know to investigators? 
Yeah, so I think if you sort of try and examine the game theory of of Paul Manafort, you can come up with a rational reason why someone would want to go to trial on the first set of charges, uh, even though he was overwhelmingly unlikely to win. It's much harder to come up with a rational explanation for why he would do it again in the next trial, right? So he uh, he probably faces around ten years in jail on the charges that he's been convicted of. Uh, you know, the next set of charges will add to that substantially. Um, you know, I, I think the question becomes, you know, if you're Paul Manafort, do you decide to go the cooperation route or do you decide to go essentially the pardon route? Um, you know, President Trump is making all kinds of, of bizarre statements this morning, sort of praising Paul Manafort for not, quote, breaking, uh, you know, and, and speaking to federal prosecutors. The guy he barely knew in the last time we talked about Right. Him. Very he honorable was a very man. Good man. <laughs> good man. Right. Good man. Um, right. So this is right, he's Trump is sort of leaving the breadcrumbs of, you know, this is how he tends to talk about people that he plans to pardon. You know, look, um, Michael Cohen knows Donald Trump a heck of a lot better than Paul Manafort does, and, and he knows him for a lot longer. And Michael Cohen, looking at a similar sort of landscape, uh, decided that cooperating with prosecutors was better than risking his fate on Donald Trump pardoning him. And so, you know, if uh, if Manafort is essentially going to go to this next trial, I, I think he must be hanging his hopes uh, on, on Trump pardoning him. And I think ultimately that's going to be a, a pretty grievous miscalculation. I wouldn't be surprised if what happens is Trump attempts to sort of trial balloon the pardon, pardoning Manafort. He gets slapped down really hard by congressional Republicans. And already you have Lindsey Graham and others sort of coming, coming out and saying, don't you dare pardon him. Uh, and then once Manafort sees the writing on the wall that, that Trump is going to essentially wuss out and not back him on this, he then decides to cooperate. Well, so it's, I mean, it's an interesting question whether the president would wuss out, because I think the answer to that hinges on how important the president thinks pardoning Manafort is to him, um, to his interests, to his family, to his fate. Uh, and we don't actually know the answer to that yet. I mean, what we know is that Manafort was a very, very swampy creature before he ever went to work on the Trump campaign, that he continued his swamp creature behavior on his own behalf while he was He's working like for He's like prototype the... swamp. Like he yes. invented a a species of swamp creature. Yeah, he's really sort of old old fashioned yeah. DC swamp yeah. creature, right? And so he was doing that while he was on the Trump Trump campaign clearly had in mind using his presence on the campaign to his own advantage, right? So to get out of hock with a bunch of Russian oligarchs. Right. So. And so we what we don't know yet is whether any of Manafort's behavior or any of the information that he carries has anything to do with the president's own connections right. to Russian oligarchs or to dirty international money or anything else. Um, and so like Manafort could have just been the lamprey on the underside of the shark, right? Right. So if you're Donald Trump and you don't think Manafort has anything on you, then maybe you're you're going to respond to this gentle, what I see as fairly gentle pushback so far from Lindsey Graham and others on pardoning Manafort. You're going to respond to that and what's out. But if you think Manafort's really capable of implicating you in a Michael Cohen-esque way or maybe even worse – um, because it does connect to Russia, then you might go ahead and pardon him anyway. 
I mean, it does seem like one thing that Manafort has sort of the potential to be is this connection. And we've talked about this in, in, in the past that, right, there is this conspiracy on the Russian side to do all kinds of things. There is the impulse within the Trump campaign to behave unethically, potentially criminally in accepting all this help. But we are still missing the kind of the, the connection between the yeah. two. And, and it does seem like if anyone is in a position to sort of fill in the blanks here, Manafort might be that person. So I agree with Tammy that we have to take the possibility of a Manafort pardon seriously. And I think the reason is that the president keeps talking about him in such a sympathetic fashion. He's clearly aware he has this developing pattern of kind of rage pardoning people by way of pissing people off. He's clearly feels that pardoning Manafort would be in some sense self-protective. And he's, he is being encouraged by the kind of Fox ecosystem to kind of take the plunge and do it. And, you know, I, I noticed on Twitter yesterday, there were a bunch of, you know, people from that world who were, you know, tweeting very sympathetically. And, I do think that over time that that pressure builds up and and it's where he wants to go anyway. And so I, I do worry about it. Do you guys think that it seems to me that the next trial in D.C. potentially is more of a I don't know if it's a legal liability, but certainly more of a political liability insofar as he is on trial for failing to register as a foreign agent for a government that was a crony puppet government of the Kremlin. I mean, Trump likes to talk about that this isn't Russian collusion and Paul Manafort and what they're investigating has nothing to do with collusion. And that's true. But the linkages between Paul Manafort and the Russian government are multiple and significant and point to political influence and potential criminality. Um, it just seems to me that that's kind of like a festering, you know, Russia-shaped wound that's just kind of sitting over there and that that could be a much more interesting trial in September than one about, you know, bank fraud or tax, you know, evasion in which the most colorful parts of it were literally the man's clothes. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. And I think that it's not just sort of what Manafort gets charged with or convicted. It's it's the nature of the evidence that's going to become public, right? So, you know, if you look at sort of the damaging things that came out of the last trial, it wasn't that Paul Manafort didn't pay his taxes. It was things like this email in which, you know, he recommends that, that they uh, appoint the CEO of a bank who's given him preferable treatment, uh, you know, for on his fraudulent application uh, for the secretary of the army and Jared Kushner responds on it, exclamation point. And so it's like, right, it's <laughs> on, it, it. on it, of course. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. You bet. Um, right. And so I, I think that it's not, it's that we're, we're wading into those waters in which I, I just think we're, we're getting kind of closer to the bullseye. It's hard to imagine that there's not going to be a, a significant narrative about Paul Manafort's conduct related to him being the campaign manager, right? We know that he made these, reportedly he made these offers to Russian oligarchs to brief them uh, while he was uh, while he was running the campaign. You know, so, so I do think that it is, 
it is a potential minefield for the president, in part because he has no idea what might be out there, not just in terms of his own conduct and behavior, but what all the people around him might have said or done or committed to writing in some way. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And when I think about the Cohen events yesterday and the Manafort trial that's upcoming, I think that the package is particularly damaging and perhaps still even more dangerous for the president. Because in the Cohen case, you may not have Russia, but you have clear criminality. And in the Manafort case, you may not have campaign collusion, but you have clear Russia, right? And so both of these arms of the president's denials over the last year and a half are collapsing in the face of these events. And then if you take these two together with the other two political uh, corruption indictments of the last week, right? Two members of Congress, one for insider trading, one for uh, campaign finance violations that are... We need a new word for it. It's not even a campaign finance violation. It's, a, it's, a, it's an assault on campaign finance It laws. is. I mean, it's like, like a... meddling is not the right word, right? <laughs> right? So it's so much grosser than that. Um, but all of this put together is just a soup of criminality and corruption surrounding the president, his political party, his political yeah. allies. And it's very, it's like tar that sticks to his heels at a certain point. Well, that's a, a really, swamp, one might say. <clears throat> yeah. A swamp, a sucking swamp. Well, that's a really good segue into this this third piece we want to talk about, which is... I was practicing segues. Yeah, you, you gone, are. you just so. a setup. Set up <laughs> Tammy's coming for you, Shane. <laughs> like a volleyball team. Um, this question of both what it means for the president, but how the president is likely to react. And, and one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about throughout the whole affair russe and boy is it ever coming to the fore now is that donald trump has done a pretty masterful job of framing this entire scandal such that if collusion or conspiracy with russia is not proved nothing else matters so to your point tammy you can have my campaign manager is going to jail on tax evasion and failure to register my national security advisor pled guilty to lying to the fbi my former lawyer is pleaded guilty to committing finance violations and crimes which at hunt? my direction uh which which right but no collusion no collusion which he said about 158 times right. yesterday on the tarmac okay maybe not that many But it seems to me that the strategy is completely unchanged and potentially is working. I mean, if you look at the reaction from Republicans in Congress, it does seem that whatever the crimes may be, either committed by the president's closest aides and advisors, including crimes that he has been implicated in, it doesn't really matter if it's not the C word. So I I think it's working in one sense, which is that is the current seawall – in Congress holding? Mm. And is Trump's public support holding at the low level that it is? Yes. Um, the question is going much lower, but yeah. There's another sense in which it's not clear to me that it's holding, which is all of those people who made those statements yesterday have to get reelected. And, you know, I am not a political prognosticator, but when you over a long period of time don't do anything in the face of um, this kind of corruption, 
uh, eventually voters take it out on you. And, you know, a lot of people are saying that uh, there's going to be a blue wave in November. And so one possible way for it not, you know, for the strategy not to work is for Congress to rise up against the president. But another way for the strategy not to work is for the public to rise up against Congress. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So I'm one who has said in our discussions over months and months that I don't think the American public cares about the Russia investigation and that I don't think this is going to Play. Baby Cannon took offense every time you said uh, you that. You know, I'm, I'm really sorry about that, but that, that was my opinion. And actually, you know, in a sense, I'm sticking to it. But I think that what's shifting here is, you know, that it's not so much about Russia anymore. It's about corruption. And corruption is something that we know publics care about. In fact, corruption has been a mobilizing issue in the framework of populist political competition in a whole bunch of countries over the last couple of years. Usually it's an argument that populists use against the establishment. But in this case, you know, Trump's now been in office for two years. This Congress has been led by Republicans for a lot longer than that. I think they are quite vulnerable to a campaign that is beating them over the head about their own corruption, um, which isn't to say that Democrats aren't also vulnerable to accusations of corruption in individual cases. But just the onslaught of instances in Trump, in his cabinet, uh, in his campaign staff, in his close advisors, makes him vulnerable. I think the challenge is that even if that becomes a winning argument for Democrats in November, even if there is a blue wave, and I think it's going to be very, very close in a lot of different races, so it could happen, it could not happen. But the Republicans who will lose are the ones that are in more mixed districts. The hardest line, most ideological, most Trumpian Republicans will be fine. And so the Republicans that are left in Congress after a November election in which Democrats do well are the ones who are most likely to stick to the president, which means that if the Democrats pick up seats but don't gain control in either house, I don't think it matters in terms of congressional action toward the White House. So in terms of the response, um, so the president today has sat, has sat down with Fox News, of course, and Fox has released this like minute and a half clip of Donald Trump discussing the Stormy Daniels payments. Uh, he essentially alleges that he didn't know about it at the time, and he's trying to sort of say... Yeah, he says you know, he knew later on. Exactly, and he's trying yeah. to sort of give this odd formulation of campaign finance laws, sort of this straw man argument in order to, to say, well, I didn't do that. And I, I really would urge people to watch that clip. I have the transcript. Because right it, but it, the transcript doesn't capture it. Yeah. It doesn't capture a man who knows he has been caught and is trying to bluff his way out of it. And I don't know how many people have had the experience of having someone dead to rights and them lying to you. But that is the visceral feeling of the way Trump, he's stammering, he's stuttering, he's trying to to sort of to shift topics and, and say, well, I tweeted about it. Remember, I tweeted about it at the time, right? Sort of trying to get the interviewer on his side. And so on on, on one hand, I, I do think that sort of the, the walls are closing in, you know, these investigations are getting closer and closer, and he is feeling the pressure. At the same time, I think that is the most dangerous moment and that Trump does have these really 
unbelievable, extraordinary, unchecked powers. And this is a guy who, when he is cornered, he is not someone who eventually just says, all right, like, let's call it a day. He's not even Richard Nixon that finally says, well, when I've been had, I've been had. He's a guy that's going to that's going to fight it to the end. And so, you know, on one hand, it's sort of it's it's satisfying to think, well, this investigation is coming close closer and closer to the president and 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 maybe this glimmer of like people are going to pay a price for this stuff and, and sort of the rule of law and institutional accountability does work in the United States but there's also sort of this undercurrent of of fear and danger to it just in the sense that as you get closer and closer you know what is he going to do well and i i have to say you know as somebody who's primary focus is foreign policy. The closer we get to that president in a corner, uh, the more dangerous it is for the United States, the more dangerous it is for American partners around the world. There's a host of brewing crises that a presidency in crisis cannot reliably handle. And, you know, whatever questions we may have had about the competency of this administration to handle crisis before, now I think, you know, it, it becomes more and more dangerous, which is one of the reasons why a responsible congressional leadership in normal circumstances would look at the situation and send, you know, some trusted spokespeople over to the White House to sit down with the president in private and say, hey, guy, for the sake of the country, you know, it might be time. But I, you know, I, do, I don't see that happening here. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the political will is there. I mean, Paul Ryan was asked about... Michael Cohen's revelation yesterday and through a spokesman said, uh, we have read the information about Michael Cohen and if I'm murdering the quote, but essentially said, we still, we have to, we, we need to know more information than is publicly available. Who knows? Right. 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 It so could be anything. Yeah. There won't be hearings anytime soon. Uh, all right. Before we move on to object lesson, I should have done this at the top of the show. I apologize. We had a plan. Best laid plans. We're going to talk about all the things that we didn't talk about this week. Because if you can believe it or not, Tuesday took up a month and there were like 10 other things that happened this week. <laughs> Duncan Hunter got indicted. Oh, and as if on cue, <laughs> one of Donald Trump's only supporters in Congress during the campaign indicted yeah, the, on The other his... one's already been indicted. Yeah, right. Th- that's right. That's right. There's like, I think, it, wouldn't you hate to be number three? Um, Jeff Sessions was number three. Oh, that's true. Well, <laughs> he's recused. <laughs> <laughs> Two indicted, one recused. <laughs> All right. So we're not talking about uh, President Trump's threatened to pull more people's security clearances as more than 200 former national security officials have signed letters of protest. That's been kind of a BFT, too. Uh, Mueller has interviewed White House counsel Don McGahn for more than 30 hours. He is still White House counsel, though, so I want to point that out. Uh, Russians are targeting think tanks and campaigns, according to Microsoft, which took down a number of websites associated with Russian interference. uh, Can I just interject what is new about Russia targeting think tanks? I think what's new about this one also is that a private company intervened to stop it and is publicly warning about it. And uh, I think that's actually something we should be paying attention to as a possible model for how you're going to do election security is that uh, the big companies responsible for our information environment are going to step in and not wait for Kirsten Nielsen to come in on a white horse. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, that image. Yeah, let that sink in. Government, <laughs> the it's government. It's not going to be a not white horse. <laughs> Ouch. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't care. I'm leaving it. Uh, the government can't use clean team statements in the trial of Kali Chick Muhammad and his co-defendants. Also a BFD. Yeah. Seriously. There's a whole bunch of information from the 9-11 plotters that now is inadmissible as evidence. Yeah. And there's, uh, you know, and we also, you know, killed a major uh, bomb maker in Yemen. And yeah. Nobody bothered to care or notice. Right. But we, right. we also killed a bunch of school kids in Yemen. Oh, God. Well... I'm glad about the bomb maker, I suppose. Uh, yes, very big deal. A notorious Al-Qaeda bomb maker, by the way, who had been rumored killed multiple times over the years. And we were trying to track him down because he had, like, you know, savant-level capabilities with building explosive devices and was... Although a, I think that's uh, under dispute. He, he blew really up his brother with a bomb, right? right? What's that? Didn't his brother, yeah. like, carry a bomb? He had a... Blew there was a failed assassination. Yeah, they this stuck a the... bomb up his butt. <laughs> Oh, yeah, man. Man. Butt bomb. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> some of my faves. <laughs> we should note no one else was seriously harmed. Yeah. Well, well, except the guy who was the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. But anyway, we're going off on so many tangents right now. Anyway, um, we didn't talk about that. Go before. on Wikipedia. <laughs> pack a lunch. Um, Facebook removes multiple accounts and says they were inauthentic and linked to Russia and Iran. And it turns out that George Papadopoulos was not such an important witness to Mueller after all. He'll have a reality show by fall. So we didn't talk about that. Let's move on to object lessons. I've got one. Okay. <laughs> I've got one. You have one too? Yeah. I know what yours is. I have one too. Oh, good. Susan, do you have one too? I do not have okay, one. Okay, well, we'll do three. So I'll go ahead and do mine. Uh, it's a new book that is coming out. Uh, in fact, I think it is available now. Uh, forgive me if I don't have the exact public, but uh, it's by a journalist named Craig Unger, House of Trump, House of Putin, The Untold Story of Donald Trump and the Russian Mafia. Um, I like this book. I read it. I reviewed it for The Post, actually. Uh, and while I take a little bit of issue with the idea that it's an untold story, there's actually a lot in the book that has been told. But like so many things in this story – there are just fragments of information littering the landscape and very few occasions where somebody gathers them all up and puts them into a new coherent narrative, which in many ways can be more powerful than the original stories themselves were. So Craig Unger has told a really interesting story, making the argument that Russian corruption and compromise of Donald Trump goes back to many, many years before the election and largely has to do with Russians using both his condos and potentially other parts of his business for money laundering. Uh, so it's a really, it's a really well-told story. It's pretty riveting. Uh, and you should check it out. House of Trump, House of Putin by Craig Unger. Cool. Um, so my object is also a book, uh, a new book by David Kirkpatrick, who is Ooh, I'm excited about this one. based in London for the New York Times. He was uh, the Cairo correspondent for the New York Times during the Egyptian Revolution. He also reported from Libya during the um, armed uprising against Muammar Gaddafi there. And it's uh, it's called Into the Hands of the Soldiers, Freedom and Chaos in Egypt and the Middle East. And it's a it's a wonderful account, um, both because he captures very well, not just the events, but the mood of the actors in these 
historic transformations in the Middle East, the hopes, the fears, the choices, and how things went bad. Uh, but he also does a really good job of capturing the uncertainty of the moment, the uncertainty that he experienced as a reporter covering these events. Throughout the book, he'll he'll be narrating something and then he'll sort of stop and he'll say, now, at the time, I knew X, Y, and Z. And I didn't understand anything about this context. I learned that two years hmm. later. Uh, and so I was really dumb in the article I wrote. You know? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it's a wonderfully self-aware account. Um, and I think he brings that critical eye not only to himself, but also to American officials who were making policy on these events, to some of the key political actors, especially in Egypt. And it's just a, a really thoughtful account. He writes in his introduction how much he appreciated working with the renowned New York Times correspondent Anthony Shadid, uh, who covered the Egyptian revolution alongside him and then uh, died reporting on the war in Syria. Uh, and he says at one point, I wish I could have read the book that Anthony would have written no. about these events. And while this is in no way, I think, a book that Anthony Shadid would have written, it is a book worthy of uh, that legacy of deep, empathetic, thoughtful, and honest reporting about the Middle East. So definitely commended to all of you. Great. Bean. So as we were recording Rational Security today, Lawfare uh, released uh, our challenge coin. Ben, were you multitasking while I was, we were recording? I was multitasking, or rather... Is this like Bitcoin? There's you guys only always have number. my undivided attention. Yeah. Thank so you. So I, I, my mind was slightly elsewhere. I was launching the, the challenge coin. Uh, and uh, the Lawfare challenge coin has been in the works for an embarrassingly long time. We have spent an unbelievable amount of time and energy on it. And we are uh, we, we created it to give... Uh, a way to uh, people who donate to the site. And and here's the thing, particularly for rational security listeners, on the back of the coin, we have two images, both of them taken from the bronzes at the Barrett Prettyman Courthouse, where the FISA court, among other courts, is, is housed. They are the figure of authority and the figure of justice, Lady Justice holding her uh, scales. And on the coin, we have rendered authority typing a lawfare post on a laptop, and we have rendered uh, Lady Justice uh, recording a podcast. And of course, for rational security listeners, particularly, both are also drinking scotch. <laughs> uh, and so uh, give a donation to lawfare, get a challenge coin, uh, and have a glass of scotch. We will not use the funds to cover up any illicit affairs, we promise. <laughs> uh, except with, for, on behalf of individual. <laughs> and if we do so, we will report it. Yeah. As required no, I, I think law. that's the key point. If we use your funds. <laughs> we will not illegally if, use your if funds. If we use your funds to benefit, <laughs> to cover up an affair and thereby benefit a presidential candidate, we will report it in compliance or with the federal or pay for our vacations. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimate transparency here at <laughs> We'll look forward to that. But in the meantime, that brings us to the end of the show this week. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the same place, I suppose, where you can buy that challenge coin. Yeah. yeah. 
on Lawfare. <laughs> See the symmetry, the synergy just works out perfectly. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast from Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, please remember to leave us a great rating and review. We really appreciate it and helps everyone out. Our audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Individual One and All the Best People. Oh, yeah, very nice. good. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> and if he really did hire all the best people, Sophia Yan would definitely be one of them. Yeah. On behalf of my good friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittis, and Tamara Kaufman Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. So glad to be back. Talk to you next week. Bye bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.